Good morning, everyone. Hope you're well. It's great to see you all. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 3, if you'll turn there. have one announcement. After the service today, about 11.15-ish, I think is when we set up the Zoom call, that uh, we're going to have a quarterly meeting. So you're all invited to attend, to stick around, have a coffee, and enjoy that. So it's just a time to communicate what's going on and uh, to interact. So it, it should be a blessing. encourage you to stick around for that. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your promises and for your goodness, that you are so great. You are beyond our comprehension, and you revealed yourself to us. You've opened our eyes to see. You've given us such evidence in creation and in your word and in the life of Jesus Christ of how awesome and excellent and righteous you are. And we, we rejoice to come before you today to read your word and to hear your voice. And pray, Lord, that our praises, though not perhaps uttered in singing in this place, uh, will be accepted by you, that our hearts would be filled with joy, your peace, contentment, and rest as we wait on you, as we look to you. Thank you, Lord, that you are there, that you are real that you have a future for us that is glorious because it's with you and in your presence. And we delight to do your will, O Lord, and pray that you be glorified in our midst today in Jesus' name. Amen. The fact that Jesus uh, doesn't take us immediately to heaven when we're born again, it shows us that he cares more about than just saving us. He, he has plans and purposes for us that involve more than our eternal salvation. Looking back, I can say my young life was filled with concern about the salvation of others. I was almost preoccupied with whether someone was saved or not. And that was kind of where my concern for them ended. It's like if they were saved, okay, good. Don't have to worry about that anymore. And if they weren't, I wanted them to be saved. And I've heard many people lament the poor choices of others and say, well, at least they're saved. Or the opposite, someone falls into sin and they say, well, I doubt that they're even saved if they did that, right? We can just swing to these extremes based on appearances. It's like their salvation was seesawing back and forth. God desires that all would repent and trust in Christ as Savior. But he cares for us now, not just to save us, He cares for us to know Him, to be coming to Him, to to honor and glorify Him. And if eternity in heaven was all God saved us for, He wouldn't have sent the Holy Spirit and given us gifts and made us fruitful now for His glory. He wouldn't have given us His truth to share with others and that that, uh, command to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Being in, Jesus, being in heaven with Jesus will be wonderful, but we are called to abide in him now. It's good for us to consider, is my life a testimony of God's faithfulness, provision, and salvation, or one of aimless wandering and defeat? That's the very... Uh, the writer of Hebrews pulls no punches in showing us today that people who believe God exists... Christians who've trusted in Christ can fall short of the rest that Jesus has provided for us. That there is a peril of unbelief for believers. And we have to believe that that's possible or else we'll miss the whole point of what is being said in chapter 3. 
Their, their salvation, to whom the writer of Hebrews wrote, was not in question, but how they responded to that. If they were going to enter into God's rest, that was a question. It was dependent on whether they were going to harden their hearts or be those who come to Christ. Jesus came to give us abundant life. That doesn't just translate into heaven. He has come to give us life and life abundantly, that we could live life to the full as we follow Jesus today. Productive, fruitful, victorious. And we want that, right? We want to live a victorious life, victory over sin, over unbelief, to repent, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's true for them and it's true for us. In chapter 1, the writer uh, spoke of the superiority of Jesus over all angels. In the second chapter, the necessity of God's humanity to, to suffer for us even to death and that by suffering, he, he gives us power over death and over temptation. And in chapter 3, the supremacy of Christ is demonstrated over all and over Moses, whom the Hebrews venerated as a prophet and honored him, Jesus is more worthy of honor and reverence. So let's begin in Hebrews 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. This builds on the previous chapter, and he said it was so important that the Christ be the son of Abraham, that Jesus through death defeat the power of Satan, and that he is our merciful and faithful high priest. Because Jesus suffered death for us, he can deliver us from death. Having successfully endured temptation, he can deliver us and help us in our time of need. And it's important to remember that this letter was written to Christians. See how it begins, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. These were Christians with the Hebrew background. And the only one who can make holy is God. And they were made holy through faith in Christ. That's who he is addressing this to. God alone is holy. And when Jesus says, follow me, it's not just for this life. It is for eternity because that's the place he's preparing for us, to abide with him. And he says, believers, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. To consider is to carefully examine, to, to observe fully. The definition of an apostle is one who is sent. So Jesus was sent from God to seek and save sinners. And unlike priests who daily needed to offer sacrifices for their own sins and then the sins of the people, Jesus once for all offered himself so that we could be, the sin of the world would be put upon him and we could be forgiven. Moses was a faithful man. He was faithful to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt to the cusp of the promised land and led them throughout the wilderness as God, God's presence went before them. And he had this privileged role, like God appeared to him in that burning bush and spoke to him, called him, said, go and, and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. 
And he says, how will, they, how will they know that you've spoken with me? He's like, well, here's some miracles you can perform on command to show that I indeed spoke with you. And he gave those to the, the Hebrew elders. And they go, okay, this man, he's the real deal. He's speaking for God. And then the plagues. And then he led them through the, the Red Sea. He was given the law. Like everyone else stayed back in the camp. Moses went up and he spoke with God. And when he, after speaking with God... It says his face glowed, and the people were like, whoa, kind of running away from him because the glory of the Lord was still shining on his face from that time spent with him. So he covered his face with a veil. He was also vindicated when Korah and his rebellion came against Moses, and they murmured and complained against God's leadership, and the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all those who followed. So he was a man the people were to honor and to hold in high esteem. But Jesus, far greater glory. Because he said of laws given to Moses, it was written, but I say unto you. He didn't just speak for God, he spoke as God. John said if all the miracles that Jesus did were written down, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. When Jesus was baptized, it says the heavens were opened to him, that the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended and remained upon him, that God's voice, when he was transfigured on the mount in, in heavenly glory, God's voice boomed from the heavens and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, my son, not my servant. He was a servant. Moses was called my servant by God, but God called Jesus my son. And Jesus proved he was God through the healing of people. He proved he could forgive sins. He raised Lazarus from the grave. And then he was vindicated three days after his death by rising himself from the grave in immortal glory. So he's worthy of far more glory than Moses, even as the builder has more glory than the house. And we can get this wrong. We can see the house and, oh man, that's terrific, but think little of the builder because maybe of a I don't know why, but we will glorify the building more than the builder. But hey, that quality deck, that pagola, that could not exist without the skilled craftsmen who designed it and built it. The builder should receive far more glory than what was built. A house is going to go, grow old and that deck is going to need refurbishment, but the builder lives on to make new things. They deserve more glory than the things they build. Verse 4, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Moses was viewed as a patriarch of the Hebrews, but it was God who called and empowered Moses, God who gave him the law, God who enabled him to accomplish the work. Since Jesus is God, since he's created all things, he deserves all the glory and honor for even what others have built because it's God's work, right? He did it. He's responsible for it. Continuing in Hebrews 3, verse 5. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. God referred to Jesus as my son. Moses was faithful in building the tabernacle and sanctifying priests in leading the people. That was just a shadow of what Jesus would do 
in the building of the house of God, the church, and also as individuals, that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Notice verse 6, it says of God's own house, whose house we are if we hold fast to the end. Could you please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. To be a priest, that was restricted to the tribe of Levi and the line of Aaron. Those who are in Christ, because he is our high priest, we are being built up into a spiritual house. 1 Peter chapter 2 starting in verse 4, speaks of Jesus, the one that we come to, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's true that we came to faith in Jesus when we first believed. But verse 4, it speaks of our coming to Him. This, this tense is really important because it speaks of something that's habitual and uh, continuous, that we are coming to Him. We came to Him, yes, but we are to be coming to Him, to keep seeking Jesus, to keep uh, habitually drawing near to Him, to have fellowship with Him, to be praying, to hear Him speak through His Word to ask for help and guidance. And if we believe that he is the Son of God, we will seek him, and we will find him when we seek him with our whole hearts. When trials and difficulties hit, are you more uh, prone to just say, you know, I don't really know if God's real or if God really loves me? Or are you someone who, in the pain and in the difficulty, are, are compelled to seek the Lord more? And that's good evidence that you are his because you're seeking him when it's hard, when it requires faith. If you take stock of your life and you say, I have very little desire to read the Bible, no desire to be in fellowship, to pray, it's a warning sign that our heart is hard. We may believe in God, but we need to realize that this hardness of heart is a problem and it will lead to destruction. It might be that what passed for faith in early days was just emotion that dries up over time. Christians are compared to living stones of which God has built a spiritual house, the church, a holy priesthood. And this is really significant for the Jews because they relied upon the, whole, the high priest to make atonement for the sins of the people. Not everybody was supposed to offer the sacrifice. The priest was. And because Jesus is our high priest, we then have this privilege beyond what the high priest's privilege was in the days of uh, the temple standing, is now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We can give acceptable spiritual sacrifices to the Lord because of the work Christ is doing in our hearts, because of who he's made us. We've been born again. We're now adopted into his family. We're part of his body. And so we can, now that we're holy by grace through faith in him, we can offer spiritual sacrifices, and there's no need for another person to say, well, here's my sacrifice. You offer it to God because I'm not acceptable. God has received you. You are acceptable through him. I mean, how awesome is that? And during the history of Israel, don't think that everyone that was of the line of Aaron or of the tribe of Levi actually worked in that field. 
Some of them, for whatever reason, they were disqualified from service. It did not interest them. They did not work toward that end. We see in the, the life of the line of Eli that there were some in his line that did not serve as priests. Some Israelites, they were supposed to offer up sacrifices to God, but they did not offer sacrifices to God as he commanded. And there can be Christians who are indifferent to the opportunities and the privileges and the responsibilities that we have in Christ to offer ourselves as living sacrifices acceptable to God. It's our reasonable service, but it doesn't mean we're always doing it, right? We know that it's the right thing to do, but we're not always proactive and intentional to do it. So if our confidence, our rejoicing is wavering, let's return to Jesus. Let's be coming to him again. Hebrews 3, 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, was I angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The writer of Hebrews, he quotes from Psalm 95, 7 through 11. And today, the day that he says there, that was a day of salvation for them. He's saying today, today is the day of salvation. If you will hear today, there's hope for you. There's hope for you today if you will quit hardening your heart and start listening to God. The children of Israel, they were eyewitnesses of God's glory, weren't they? They saw those plagues. They saw the miracles. The presence of God came down upon the mountain. They passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They were led by a pillar of cloud in the day and a pillar by fire in the night. At any time, they could get up, they could look out the door of their tent, and they could see the tabernacle and the Spirit of God over it, visibly illuminating the whole camp. And yet, we'll see they did not enter into God's rest. They ate manna every day. They gathered it up. Like, where does this stuff come from? Every day we're eating this manna. And the quail that God would blow in in the evenings. And the water from the rock. God provided all these things for them. And yet, they did not enter in. Overall, they reluctantly followed Moses. We know they, they whinged and complained and had problems with his leadership. They grumbled against him. But God points out the real problem. He says they went astray in their hearts. They did not know God or his ways. That was the issue. They believed in the existence of God, but did not trust him to lead them day by day. They trusted themselves more than him. A few examples just to illustrate. Shortly after the exodus, the people contended with Moses. They had no water to drink. The people complained. They accused Moses that he had brought them out in the wilderness to kill them. That's pretty strong words. Like, you just wanted to kill us out here. So Moses goes before the Lord. He prays. And this is what God said. He said, gather the elders, take the rod, the same rod that you used to part the waters, in the Red Sea. And in Exodus 17, 6 and 7, this is what God said, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. 
So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Hardness of heart caused the people to doubt if God was even there. And we just go, how could they do that? They had all this evidence. They're drinking the water. They're seeing the presence of God. Water doesn't come from rocks. Another incident, the Hebrews are going to Mount Sinai. God appears to them. The people feared for their lives when the earth shook and the flame of fire burned and there's smoke and there's the trumpet of God and his voice booming out. And the people are like, Moses, you talk to God. He, he's just going to destroy us. You talk to him. So Moses goes up the mount boldly in faith. When he didn't return as soon as the people thought he would, this is what happened in Exodus 32.1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, let us make gods. Make us gods that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So because of what the people don't know, because their expectations haven't been met, they are turning right away from the God who they were scared to death of days before, and they're asking the high priest to now make them idols to worship. A lifeless God that they could celebrate. Another example is when they arrived at the promised land. Twelve spies were sent for 40 days into the land to, to spy it out. Joseph and Caleb, they came back with a good report. And they brought back some of the fruit of the land. They said, wow, this place is awesome. But the other ten they gave a bad report. They focused on the fortifications and the giants that were in the land. They said, this land, it just consumes the inhabitants. The, we're like grasshoppers compared to these giants. Like, we don't have a chance. We've come all this way for nothing. Numbers 14, 1 through 4. This is the reaction of the people. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us select a leader and return to Egypt. The people complained. They wished for death. They saw themselves as victims. They were wallowing in self-pity because of the bad report that they heard. And this can totally, I was definitely, these, these hit home for me. <laughs> a lot of self-pity. Like, why has God done this to us in hopelessness? As if giants made God a liar. So the people question, is God with us or not? They imagined he forgot about them. He didn't meet their expectations. They wondered why he would do this, bring us all this way for nothing. So this, these rebellious responses of complaining and murmuring, false accusations, idolatry, refusal to listen, disobedience, self-pity, they were symptoms of a more sinister sin, unbelief. We often will go, well, I'm complaining a lot. I got to knock off that complaint. That's self-pity. I tend to wallow in that. I need to stop that. I need to do this instead. No, no. 
unbelief was the root cause of all these problems that the people had. And that's why they were unable to enter. Hebrews 3.10, it identifies that issue as their sinful, hardened hearts. Provoked by unbelief, God said, these people shall never enter my rest. God wasn't seeking to destroy them. God didn't want to prevent them. God had prepared that land for them. It was the right time. But they were unwilling to trust in him to enter. And so God shut the door so it was impossible to enter. They were a people who continued to test and to try and to provoke God out of doubt rather than obedience by faith in him. Continuing in Hebrews 3.12, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The writer of Hebrews uses the examples from the Old Testament. So Christians would be warned to ensure we also do not have a heart of unbelief that would cause us to, it says there, in departing from the living God. The Peter passage says, coming to him. This one says, departing from him. It's not just you depart and you're completely away it's, it's a slow progress, process of departing. How unbelief, it, it's sinister. It's under the surface. We may not realize it. We can be blind to it. And if coming to God is a choice that we can make, then departing from him can also be a choice. And even as a, a little virus can make the whole body sick, it can also, a little unbelief leads to hardness of heart. We've seen this play out in the lives of others, haven't we? My primary, primary concern ought to be for my heart, and your primary concern ought to be for your heart. It's very easy to go, oh yeah, that guy, he's so hard, hardened by sin. But what about you? It, you're the only one you can do something about by the grace of God. For some, unbelief that God created the heavens and the earth, as written in Genesis 1, was a start of departing from the Lord. Walking away from the word of God who created all things in John chapter 1. A person who expected God to miraculously heal them or someone else they loved, when it didn't happen according to their expectation, they had unbelief in their heart that began to harden them. Moses was a faithful servant of God. Not all men are as faithful as Moses was. Because of moral failure of a man of God someone looked up to, instead of repenting of the idolatry in their own heart, that they have put this person on a pedestal and they've given him honor and glory that's only the Lord's, their heart can be hardened towards God, who is only good. The sins of people doesn't transfer to God. God is good. Man fails. Man sins. Moses fell in the wilderness. Moses didn't make it in. Because if Moses didn't make it, what hope is there for us? 
unbelief. It's among the very worst sins because it calls God a liar. It foolishly does not take into account the things God has done, the revelation of himself. Unbelief is unwillingness to trust God. It leads us from God. Now, if you have faith, real faith, you don't need much of it, right? Just the mustard seed of faith can have great miraculous power because it's faith in God, not faith in yourself, faith in God. So a genuine faith, that's saving faith. But unbelief, it opposes faith. It undermines it. It works against it. And we shouldn't blame what's happened to us as why we're hard because we are to blame. We are responsible for hardening our hearts. It's our response to what's happened that has hardened us, not because the thing happened. Now, this was not written to put fear into the hearts of Christians that they're not born again, but so they would examine their hearts and ensure they were not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because the most tender heart and conscience among us can be hardened by sin without repentance. A concerning aspect of sin is when we refuse to repent, we become blind to our need to repent. We become insensitive and dull and calloused. We don't realize that there's a sin to repent of. We can justify sin to the point where we're not even convicted by it at all. Think of Samson whose hair had been shaved off by Delilah. He's like, I'm just going to get up like every other time and win. And he didn't know that the Holy Spirit had left him. And he ended up bound and blinded and imprisoned. We imagine that we're in control of our lives when sin is ruling us and we're at the mercy of cruel enemies. That was, that was Samson's reality. He, he thought he was in control, but he was not in control as he, his head was shaved on Delilah's needs. Proverbs 30, 20, it's an example of a hardened heart. It says, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. Now the Hebrews knew that adultery, that's a breaking of the seventh commandment. For one taken with adultery, however, sin is as necessary and casual as eating lunch. It's like, I have to eat. I've done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with what I've been doing. Because that's the way of the adulteress, right? That's the way of the sinful heart. The one who's doing the wrong thing and is hardened in it, they can't see their need to change it. And that's a contrast between the way of the adulterer and the way of God and his ways. Jesus says if we even look with lust, we've already committed adultery in our hearts. And looking leads to longer looks. And where does it end? Well, the scripture shows us with a hard heart and departing from the Lord. We're called to exhort each other daily while it's today, while it's the day of salvation, because we need to follow that, make that daily choice to come to Jesus in faith, choose to trust and obey him. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, while it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The children of Israel, they trusted God enough to leave Egypt. 
They trusted God enough to walk through the Red Sea. And that would have been a harrowing experience where you have walls of water on the right or the left. They trusted him that far. But when they came to the place that he had prepared for them, the inheritance that they had spied out and heard a good report of, they chose to listen to the bad report and they refused to enter in. Hebrews were born again by faith in Jesus. They were partakers of Christ. And it's true also for the Gentile, as we read in Ephesians 3, 6. It says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Because this letter was written to holy brethren born again by faith in Jesus, even the most mature among us cannot dodge the implications and the relevance of these warnings of unbelief, hardened hearts, and departing from the living God. You can leave the, the loaded arguments of once saved, always saved to those who love debating pointless hypothetical cases. The Bible's expressly clear. Those who are genuinely saved and are being saved can be guilty of a hardened heart and sinful unbelief that we need to be on guard against. That's, that's the message that's coming through here. It's not about losing salvation at all. It's talking about a Christian in departing from the Lord, departing from faith in Him, obedience to Him because of sin in our lives. It would be a poor response to feel self-confident in the reality of our salvation because that's not the point that's being made here. It's an exhortation to follow Jesus today. It says, today, if you will hear his voice. Hearing is a choice. Are you willing to listen to God? Are you willing to hear him? Sometimes God and other people say things that we are not willing to hear. We do not want to hear. Are you willing to admit that you do or could possibly have a hardened heart today? Hebrews 3, verse 16, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. It was the people who heard God and Moses who were unable to enter in. And it was because of unbelief. Only Caleb and Joshua, out of a million plus people, actually entered the rest that God had for them. Moses, a man honored by God who had seen his glory, he fell short of entering in to this inheritance, this rest. And if he fell short, we can fall short of entering the rest that Jesus has for us now. In anger at their unbelief and consequent disobedience, God swore. He said, they shall never enter my rest. God's word is binding. He doesn't have to give an oath, but when he does, it's emphatic. It's like, this is not happening. And when God says that, we should be on notice. So the unbelief of God's people, the subsequent uh, testimony of their fallen corpses in the wilderness, he's like, look at this, guys. We're like, oh, I don't really want to see that. That's uncomfortable. That's unpleasant. God had a rest for them they didn't experience. 
It's true for followers of Jesus who harden their hearts today. It's not a matter of eternal salvation, but it's of infinite importance because in this life, we will be eternally rewarded for how we steward it, right? For how we live this life, there is eternal reward, and we want to have a full reward. We don't want to fall short of a full reward. We don't want to fall short of the, the rest that we have in Christ today. That should be really important to us, not just if we're saved or not, because God saved you for more than that. He, he saved you to know him, to walk in his ways, to glorify and honor him. Canaan is not a type of heaven. That's something we need to make very clear. It's not a type of heaven. Is there gonna be, are there going to be giants and enemies in heaven? No. Canaan is not heaven. Canaan is like the abundant life that we have, the victorious life that we have in Christ as a believer, where we receive the gifts, the spiritual gifts God has for us, and we walk in the victory provided by his strength. So it's not talking about going into heaven or not. God has an inheritance for you. He wants you to enjoy right now. God has a rest for you, Christian a place of spiritual blessing and victory and fruitfulness that you cannot have on your own through your own strength or your own wisdom. Verse 19, it concludes, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Unbelief led to hardness of heart, refusal to hear, disobedience. Sin deceived them. Did they want to enter in? Yes, they did. They did want to enter in but they refused to enter in on God's terms. His terms are, you enter into my rest through faith in me, faith marked by obedience. After the people, well, so what I didn't read before, after the people wept, and they go, we should go get a new leader and go back to Egypt, they decided they were going to stone Moses and Aaron. They're like, let's just kill them. These guys have been causing enough trouble for us. We need a new leader. Get rid of these guys. They fell on their faces before the Lord, and God's presence appears in front of the tabernacle. That gets everyone's attention. They're like, whoa, okay, something's happening. Moses interceded for the people because God's like, I'm just going to destroy them. And he said, no, think of the nations. He interceded on their behalf. God pardoned them. But as a consequence, they would have to walk in the wilderness 40 years, one year for every day that those spies had been in the land of Canaan. They were in the land of Canaan for 40 days. And he says, as a consequence for your sin, you will be justly punished by having to wander 40 years in the wilderness. I'm going to keep providing for you. I'm going to keep your clothes from wearing out. I'm going to give you the food and protection you need. But you cannot enter my rest because you refuse to enter in. God promised that only Caleb and Joshua would enter the land. And at that moment, those other 10 fell down dead of a plague from the Lord. So that was proof that, okay, God is speaking, and those are the only two guys that are going to go in from this whole generation. Do you know what people did the next day? They said, we're going to go in. We're going to fight our way in. Numbers 14, 40. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the top of the mountain saying, here we are, we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised for we have sinned. 
So they admitted, we've sinned, yeah. We made the wrong, wrong choice yesterday, but we're not going to walk in wilderness for 40 years. We're going in. And Moses says, don't try it. God's not with you. You can't win. You cannot enter into that rest without him. Well, as Moses predicted, they were routed. They were killed because God was not with them. There was no repentance there was no change of heart in agreement with God. They admitted they did wrong. That's not repentance. Admitting that you do wrong is not repentance. Repentance is when you recognize you've done wrong and you humble yourself before God in agreement with Him. He says, you're going to go walk, take a walk. And they said, no. So it wasn't repentance. They presumed because they were God's people, they would be successful, yet their scattered corpses gave a very different answer. They believe themselves capable to take by force what God only gives by grace through faith in Him. Now, if we haven't been impacted, if you have not been impacted by these examples and this warning against unbelief, God help us because we're no better than them. We're no better than Moses or those who fell short of God's rest. Now, for the Hebrews in the wilderness... The consequences were fitting under the law. The law could only condemn you. It offered no hope of salvation. It's like having sinned, there was no means of entry. No amount of sacrifices could undo what they did. God swore they would not enter in. But I rejoice that we can have offered to us today what they could not have through Jesus. Because we have today. Today, if you will hear his voice, today is the day to be coming to Jesus. You can repent of your unbelief. You can repent of your hardness of heart. And you can trust in him right now. You can choose that. With Moses leading the children of Israel, they could not enter in. Moses could not enter in. But Jesus, our great high priest, he's made a way for us to be forgiven. He's made a way of pardon and by coming to him in faith, we can enter the rest that he promises us today. The wilderness was not penance. It was ultimately a tomb. Let no Christian be resigned to a wilderness experience out of guilt when Jesus has cleansed you. Oh yeah, I did the wrong thing. I, I kind of, I deserve this. I deserve to feel bad. I deserve to suffer. And so you'll walk and, and not enter into that rest. But that's unbelief. Jesus says, today, if you hear his voice. We can repent. We can be saved. Please turn to Matthew eleven twenty eight 30 Jesus makes an invitation. He offers it to all who will hear him, to all who will be coming to him in faith. It's an invitation and a promise. I don't find those things often go together. I, I've received many invitations, but the promises usually don't come. It's like, you're invited to this party, and I promise you're going to have the best time ever. Well, I don't know if it was the best time ever. No one makes that promise. It's kind of on me whether I'm going to enjoy it or not. It's my call. But li listen to what Jesus says. He gives us an invitation and a promise in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. 
Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some people who heard Jesus speak, they didn't see their need. They didn't believe he could do anything to help them in their problems or with their souls. But there were others who were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Those who were hardened by unbelief, they jumped at the chance. They jumped at the chance for salvation. So the question is, are you weary? Are you burdened? It's not God's will for us to remain in the wilderness when he has a rest for us to enter into through faith in him. Jesus has rest for our souls, having been made partakers with him. Let's hold our confidence in Christ steadfast to the end. And we show that steadfastness by entering in, by coming to him. The work he's begun, he will be faithful to complete. Let's be coming to him today and always. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your invitation and your promise to sinners, to those most undeserving, that you have not written us off, you have not doomed us to destruction, even after we have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but you give us a way of escape. You give us new life through Christ. You make us new. And I pray we would avail ourselves, Lord, for those of us who who have known you for some time, those who have, do not yet know you, I pray we would be coming to you as our Savior and Lord, as our King and Sovereign, that we would bow our knees and our hearts before you, Lord, acknowledging your rule over all things and over our lives. May we be those who repent, not those who try to fight our way into what you only give by grace through faith and to receive at your hand those good things you have laid up for us now and forever. Lord, I pray you would minister your truth to our hearts, that you would give us understanding of how unbelief impacts our daily lives and our interactions and our responses. And Lord, strip us of trust in self, self self-pity of all sin, that we might look to you with eyes of faith, rejoicing in your salvation, in the forgiveness you give. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. We can look to you, that you'll never leave or forsake us, and that today is the day of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.